What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another podcast edition of Athletes Wisdom, where here we talk about business, marketing, and how to build your business and brand as a college athlete. Today we have another amazing guest. This is somebody that I've actually been following for a while. Extremely smart person when it comes to online business, when it comes to building your business online. We actually have Jason Fladlin. And if you aren't familiar with who he is, this is someone who has literally helped entrepreneurs be able to generate over nine figures, maybe even 10 figures now, honestly, because he's been doing a lot even since we last spoke, but nine to 10 figures in revenue. He literally makes millionaires. Please make sure you have your pen and papers ready because the advice that he's really going to give and share with you all is going to be a life changer. Jason, thank you so much for joining. How you doing today? Man, I'm doing better than good. I like to hear. So for the people who aren't familiar with who you are, of course, you're Jason Fladlin, but just kind of give them like a quick background of who you are, how you got into your space, how you're able to kind of help people make, is it 10 figures now? Could be. I mean, kind of quit <laughs> counting after it gets to like a hundred million. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a lot. Most known for webinars, specifically webinars that sell product. Webinar is basically an online seminar. That's where the term comes from. They got popular in 2007 and 2008. And I was right there beginning my career. Prior to 2007, I'd made at most $20,000 in a single year. I mean, I was broke. 2017, I started working for other marketers online where I'd write articles and they would put their names on them. It's called ghostwriting. And from that, I was able to create a product on how I was able to do that. And I taught people, here's how I'm ghostwriting and making money. That was my first little bit of success. 2008, I started noticing, oh, people liked how I trained, liked how I taught. It was very different than other people teaching business online. And even though I was fresh and I was new, I was hungry. So I was always looking for new solutions and building little mini systems and selling really cheap products. I'd always wanted to do webinars. Prior to that, webinars weren't really viable. The technology wasn't there, meaning that both it was unstable. You couldn't do them live and count on them actually working. Two, the internet connections were too slow. So I'm like, man, I can't wait for these things to pop off because I'm going to be on the ground floor of them. And even though I'm brand new, I don't have any bias towards how to do them. So I can start with a blank sheet of paper and figure it out. There was no rule books and I didn't have to take, oh, I know how to do X over there really well. Let me just bring it in over here. I could start fresh. I liken it to how Tesla came into the automobile industry. This is why they mm -hmm. won the game and it wasn't Ford or it wasn't Toyota or Chevy who broke through. It was somebody from outside. So I started doing webinars then in 2008 and I just stayed at it and just mm -hmm. kept getting better and better and better. And because everything I was designing was unique, I wasn't borrowing it from somebody else or studying somebody else because there was nobody else to study. I was able to be a pioneer in that field. I was able, and then here's why I like webinars. Most advertising and marketing is annoying. <laughs> it's disruptive. It's like, I'm trying to watch this and you're throwing an ad in my face. And usually that's the only way ads work or you got to go the other way where you give all this value and education then an over a very long period of time, somehow, some way you get somebody to pay you money. And that's mm -hmm. such a slow process for my ADHD brain that I'm like, I can't do that either. <laughs> so the webinar kind of does the best of both worlds. I can give you value in a short period of time, but then I can also give you an opportunity to invest if it makes sense for you. Uh, and that mm -hmm. made sense to me. That's what I did. And I started applying that to everything. So I, I used to sell information products with it. Then I sold group coaching programs with it. Then I started selling software with it. I started selling other people's products as an affiliate through webinars, services. And then pretty soon people came to us and wanted us to publish them. And they had a really mm -hmm. good product and they wanted us to market it and sell it and use webinars. And then I started training people on webinars. And then Zoom, who ended up becoming a public company and is worth, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions. I don't know at this point, it's insane, right? Two months before the IPO, they brought me in to train all of their webinar users on how to do webinars. And then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden everybody went online and I'm sitting there thinking, how lucky can I be? Because this thing that I've been begging people to learn for the last 10 years that nobody really wanted to learn. Everybody's forced to learn now. So the explosion that occurred as a result of that has just been fantastic. And that's kind of the shortest version of the story that I could tell. Look, you still gave value even within that story. And and that's part of what I want people to understand, right? You've been in this for such a long time, right? You understand how it is to market on both aspects of the business. And you were able to find your niche and what worked for you. And you were able to utilize tools and certain, you know, economic changes that still ended up working for your advantage. So as an entrepreneur, right, how have you helped people make more money, right? Like you mm -hmm. said, 
with webinars, right? But I'm sure there's a formula that goes within that, that part of it, right? Can still be transferable to other styles and types of business. So kind of just give a, yep. a little bit, a little gist of that. I mean, there's really fundamentally two ways you can only make money, which is liberating if you discover it. One way is to find something that others are overlooking, that if you just tap into it, you can be successful with it. And that happens. Mm -hmm. It happens a lot, by the way, because big businesses and already established successful people, to them to bend down and pick up another $10,000 is too disruptive. They have other things that they're looking on, big picture stuff here. So they're stepping over massive opportunities. And then the rest mm -hmm. of the market copycats them. They say, well, so-and-so is doing X. I'm going to be like so-and-so because they're the successful person. I'm going to model them. They step over the opportunity as well. It's amazing how many opportunities are just left wide open. If anybody who's even average steps into that opportunity, they can give it above average result. Now, the challenge with that is nine out of 10 times, there's a reason why people are neglecting that opportunity. There's just no juice in the squeeze of it. A one time out of 10, it can be the massive next big thing. That's one of the ways that you can look at it. We help customers with that. Our mission is to find these neglected or overlooked opportunities. You can take average people and get above average results. The metaphor I give for that is if I want to make you better at poker, there's one of two ways we go about doing. I teach you game theory, how to bluff, how to calculate the odds. That's hard. Get you on tables where people just suck at poker, but they bet lots of money and then you win. That's easy right? Trying to figure that out. That's the idea of how do we not make you better, but get you a better result. Now that's usually not going to work. Some of that can work, but that's where we start. The other way though, is we find what is the position you can take that can give you the best advantage. So any and everything else you do will only help. It's like if we chop down a tree, if I have a dull ax, that's going to be really hard. But if I have mm -hmm. the sharpest ax known to man, then I can chop down a tree very easy. That's exactly. strategic position. And so I help a lot of people, brands, personal and big companies. What's the position we can take that taking this position makes everything else we do easier. So that way we can leverage point, if you will. That's what we also teach people. Try to combine the two. A, what's the best position you can take? And B, where's the opportunity, the easiest for you to start and gain momentum? Because once you have momentum, everything else is going to work better for you. I like that you said that. And when it comes to momentum, right, oftentimes people are good at riding momentum. But when they come to, say, like a screeching halt or something doesn't happen in the business, especially for new entrepreneurs, right? It's easy to get discouraged and have your momentum lost. What's a way that you've learned and might still be doing now, right? Whether you're still maneuvering through it now. What's a way that you've learned to push through momentum and find ways to reignite momentum when you lose? Yes. The number one problem we work with business owners and entrepreneurs is they're stuck in some area of their life. Stuck mm -hmm. says, I'm not moving. Uh, Newton's laws of motion say uh, an object at rest stays at rest. The tendency when you're stuck is to not move at all. And so what we try to do and usually succeed at for those businesses is gain any movement. Even a step in the wrong direction is preferable to no step at all. And I'm mm -hmm. just trying to create movement there. So what we're trying to focus is on breaking it down to a task that is so small, it's impossible to fail at. And that's where we work with customers. That's where we get a lot of them started. Let's chunk it down to something so simplistic that you're going to feel dumb if you don't take action on it. And then once mm -hmm. we get you moving, then we can take that movement and do more with it than we can when you're at rest. So if you're in the wrong direction, at least you're moving. We just have to nudge you in a different location. Or if you're in the mm -hmm. general right direction, we just have to calibrate it to get more specifically to the end result that you're looking at. And that's very challenging for people because they think you have to change the whole world in a day when really you just got to make a slight tiny improvement and then just repeat that over the next hundred days. And that's going to give you a better result. I like that. What is a good way in helping people find that right direction, right? Because oftentimes, let's do it in this perspective as a college athlete. So as a college athlete, especially someone who is probably most likely coming from an area in which they either didn't think they were going to start a business or haven't started their business Yet. So yeah. how can they actually find the right direction, even if they may seem stuck or lost? Like you said, any direction is a good direction, but yeah. how can they find a direction to start going into so they can actually start maybe learning about what they want to do or actually get the ball rolling on what they already know they want to do? For sure, man. The way I started in business, and this is the way I'd recommend, is you listen to people's complaints, uh, even their small ones. And what do people complain about over and over again repeatedly? If you can solve that complaint, I don't care how small it is, you can get a market. So for me, the complaint initially was it takes too long to write article. I'm like, I got a solution for that. Let me show you some easy ways that you can immediately improve 
improve your article writing speed. And they're like, I'll try that out. And I charged them four bucks for it, like, you know, couch cushion money. And so mm-hmm. that's how I was able to test an idea very fast. That's the key here is the moment we see something to test the ability of can we have a positive impact or not on a market? That's where you want to go toward. And I don't care, again, how small it is. Maybe they won't pay you for it at first. And that is totally okay. You got a premise. I think I can help this person in this way. Can I actually do it? Let's find out. If I can't, but nobody gets harmed in the process, that's information. That's good to know. If I can, fantastic. Because we can either add to it or package it up as is and start to go out there and start winning money and gaining experience simultaneously. People think you got to have it all in order. Like my first product I ever launched, I didn't have a logo. I didn't have a label. I didn't have a design for it. I didn't even have a web page. I posted the advertisement on a classified section of an internet forum. <laughs> I mean, we're talking down I and dirt, right? You just got to have something that somebody can say yes or no to. Mm-hmm. This is an example I always tell my clients. Like, say you had a Mona Lisa. Does it matter if she's in the art museum or if she's in a warehouse in a dark corner? She's still the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa in this metaphor is something you can do to make somebody else's life better. Yeah, you're not going to mm-hmm. put it in the museum yet. Yeah, it's not going to have a beautiful frame around it. It's not going to be staged with all the lighting. That'll come later, right? If it's in a brown paper bag right now and you're sliding it across the table, if what's inside of that is helpful, that's where you start. The idea is you got to help somebody immediately right away and you do that at the expense of everything else. And the sooner you can do that, the better. And if you do that, you document that. And then if you can do it with one, can you do it with three? If you can do it with three, then you could probably do it with 10. If you can do it with 10, then you can do it with a whole market. And the difference is very little, but the financial impact can be very large. I like that. Just to recap on what you've said so far, you essentially said you want to obviously start, right? Some movement is better than no movement, but you also want to make sure that you listen to someone's complaints, no matter how big or large, because you can essentially find that thing that they need, be able to package it up, no matter what it's packaged in. If you know it's valuable, you know you're going to actually have something that somebody can actually use. So let me ask you this. When it comes down to actually, you are a successful business owner, entrepreneur, and you have helped many people. You've gone through the trials and tribulations of starting your own business, not having a path. What is one thing that you wish you knew when you first started that you know now, like if for someone who has started their business? Yeah, man. It's Yeah, this is good. Broad like question. The things that I thought were, were matter didn't matter at all. Like the things that I worried about and wasted time on were mostly almost always insignificant. So the fear is what if I try this and it doesn't work? It's such a non plus. So you try and it doesn't work. Here's the reality. This is what I tell all my webinar folks these days. My webinar folks typically think it's going to either be an amazing success or a colossal fail. That's how they look at it. Like either I'm going to go out there and crush it. So all the pressure's on me and then they don't get it done. Or, oh mm-hmm. my God, it's going to be the worst thing ever. Somebody's going to break my house, drag me in the middle of the street and beat me in public because it's going to be that bad. Here's the reality. The first time if you were to do a webinar, the first, the most common outcome of you doing a webinar is nobody will ever see it ever. <laughs> They don't care. You know, I've written a book. My own family doesn't read my book, right? They supposedly love me. They're not reading the damn book. Most of what you're going to do is going to be largely ignored. And that's great because once it's done, you now have a new platform that you can start upon. If I have a resource Mm -hmm. that I created, even if nobody used it, I can now leverage that resource. I can add to it. I can create derivative from that, or I could adjust Mm -hmm. it and point it at something else. So the end goal here is to create assets as quickly as possible and then see in ways they interact with people. So I was always afraid of rejection, just like everybody else is, afraid of getting it wrong, afraid of making the wrong decision. I spent more time worrying about things that never happened, and I wasted more energy on that than it ever took me to build a business. I wasted more energy by tenfold than it took to become a millionaire. It took one-tenth of the energy to become a millionaire as it did for me to worry and have anxiety around things that never existed. That's powerful. So what was one of the deciding factors that helped you realize that? What really helped me realize that when I really started to be successful, I totally embraced what I just said. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't coming up with the best case scenario, get in front of people, trade it up, you know, get a win, trade it up, get a win, trade it up. And then what happened was Mm -hmm. I became a professional. Oh my God. Right. And then I had to do things correctly. And then I over-optimized and we hired people and we started doing all of this. And then we lost the spirit of what made us successful in the first place. Now, keep in mind, we were still doing really well, but it 
it was mm-hmm. so much harder for me to do well. I was now making it more complicated than it had to be. And then we got so stressed out, we brought it back down to ground zero and we came back to our roots. Uh, and that's what mm-hmm. made the difference. And so and that made me aware of what took me so long to get started in the first place. So I went in a cycle. I didn't realize at first all that inertia I had to overcome. But then once I hit it, I hit that lick and I just started knocking it out. But then I overcomplicated it again. I went on the other side of it and I'm back to where I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, only difference is I have a lot to lose now. That's what made it hard. I was playing not to lose more than I was playing to win. And then once gotcha. I recalibrated to what was successful in the first place, that's when I really learned the lesson. And that's the lesson I would say to anybody right now is what is the simplest thing you can put in front of somebody else to get them to say yes or no that gives you the least amount of risk, both you and the person on the other end. And start there and then see what happens. And you will learn more from that than I ever could tell you on a podcast. See, look, I know the viewers, I hope they're really getting the attention. I'm over here taking mental notes and learning myself. A lot of people, especially a lot of college athletes have busy schedules. They're always in school, practice, might have a side gig or side hustle. Some have already started their own business in college. Some might not have, right? But their schedule can essentially be all over the place. Yeah. As someone who might have a busy schedule yourself, I don't like using the word balance, but what is a good way that you've been able to give out your time to certain aspects in life and in business that has helped made you successful? Yeah. The fundamental principle that I try to live as much as I possibly can is the 80-20 rule. There's two mm-hmm. principles. I'll give them both to you. The first one is the 80-20 rule, which is 20% of your efforts produce 80% of your results. Or another way of looking at a few things account for many of the things. And so mm-hmm. whenever I'm doing any activity, I try to stay in that element of what's the vital few things that I need to be working towards to be successful. Now, let's make a key distinction here. Physical activities versus mental activities. There's an 80-20 rule to practice, but you still got to practice. Yeah, you still got to practice. <laughs> you ain't shortcutting that. You got to put the reps in and you got to put the work in. And a lot of that's because it's physical. There's a kinetic movement attached to it. Mm-hmm. The mental and the emotional side, which is more business, is more mental, emotional. That doesn't need as much repetition or as much dedication of time to get the mechanics in place, right? Because there's no real physical component. This is all abstract and this is mostly thinking here. This is the mental muscle, not the physical muscle. I only need to work two hours a day to get 80% of the results than if I worked eight hours a day. And so I'm constantly figuring out what are the two hours a day I need to be doing. That way, if I get nothing else done that day, at least I got my two hours. And so that's Mm -hmm. the 80-20 rule. I can work one fourth of the time or one fifth of the time as my competition. And yet I can get four times the results, by the way, because then I could stay in my element. And that's what's really powerful about business. A business is when you do something so overwhelmingly good, nobody can compete with you. Being number one in business is different than being number one in football or in basketball or what have you, right? Usually in sports, the difference between one, two, and three, especially at the professional level is almost, you can't, who wins championships is usually who has a better series of games or a better game that Mm -hmm. day, right? And, And so there's very little edge in that. In business, it's very different. If you're number one, number two barely exists and number three doesn't exist at all in every single category. Mm-hmm. Like there's Apple, there's Windows, and then there's who? Linux, maybe? I don't know, right? There's Tesla. I have no idea. Then there's who? There's, there's not even two in that category, yeah. right? There's, there's the iPad. There's some that are trying to push through, but yeah, none that. Are I mean, really they, yeah, good luck, right? Like there's Coca-Cola, there's Pepsi, and then there's non-existent. There's Royal Crown Cola, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in, when markets mature, here's how they almost always play out: there's the dominant leader, their second place, who sets their strategy to do what number one isn't doing, so they're reactive, mm-hmm. and then number three is struggling to exist. Number three through whatever. Any market you want to go in, you want to be number one in it as fast as you possibly can. Now, the hack on that is to be number one, create a category that nobody else is in, and then you're automatically number one in that category. And so that's what you try to strive for. Like you look at NILs, like most of the athletes are doing the same thing that most businesses are doing. They're looking at everybody else and seeing what's working, and then they're trying to copy that. Xeroxing the Mona Lisa will give you an inferior quality version of the Mona Lisa. But we don't want to do that. We do not want to copy your model or you uses anything other than inspiration. We want to find the gaps so we can occupy those gaps and we can be new and unique. And then if we're new and unique, we get attention. And then if we use that attention, we can be number one. If we're number one, we're top of mind. We're the one everybody wants to work with. We're first person recommended, et cetera, et cetera. If you live the 80-20 rule in business, 
you own a space in the least amount of time you do the things to own the space and then you get the majority of the rewards. Everybody else is chasing incremental improvements and then you're getting exponential results. And so that's the first rule. The second rule is the Pareto's principle, which is task at hand expands to fill allotted time. Imagine you played a game of football and you say, we're just going to play until we feel like we're done. And that's how they played the game of football. <laughs> He's going to play for a while. And then when we think we're done, we'll call it. I, you're like, yeah, I'm tired. Y'all tired. Let's just call it a day. Well, but then I want more. I want to have a chance to beat you. So I want to do another drive, exactly. right? And then the score, mm -hmm. you're still losing. Well, let me do another drive. It would either never end or it would never begin. But it's mm -hmm. four quarters and it's 15 minutes per quarter. And if you're tied, then there's an overtime, right? Exactly. It's like we should play business that way. Okay, if I want to achieve X, let me put a timer on it. And then mm. I will find ways to solve the problem within the constraints of the time given. If we don't put a time limit on our business, then it pushes into the infinite. This is why it never gets started. It never gets done. The task at hand expands to fill the time allotted. And the time allotted is forever or and 10 years or undefined, right? And it's crazy that you say that because I've never heard that principle until now, but I feel like every college student or student in general has heard that just called procrastination, essentially. <laughs> well, that's, right? they that's do it the in, in a bad way, it, right? Yeah, they do it in a bad way. And it's like a lot of times, right, people procrastinate and they wait till the very last minute to get something done. And sometimes people can perform at a high level that way and sometimes other people can't. But essentially, it still gets done and your effort and your energy is put into it until that expiring time, right? And whatever yep. the resulting product is, the resulting product is. Obviously, if you take the right amount of time, preparation, energy, and planning to get it done properly, it'll be at a higher level. But I feel like college athletes can really take that principle, right? That Pareto's they can take that principle and start implementing it in for one school now, but then it's the perfect amount of time as far as when I asked you earlier, how to how can you, you know, prioritize your time properly, taking that and then now, okay, look, I know I only have maybe an hour today and 30 minutes the next day, but if I want to get something done by this moment, maybe I need to go ahead and plan this out, make sure I put all that effort and time, that 80-20 rule, so I can get this done in the time allotted and obviously have it done at a high level. You know, it's cramming is preferable to not cramming. So the reason you get stuff done in school is because there's a deadline. And yeah, it's not ideal to cram at the last minute. And yeah, your work suffers. But you know what happens? It gets done and it can get measured. It can be put mm -hmm. out in public and have a measurable result. Let's take mm -hmm. that same attitude into business. Now, here's the real trick. Hey, this thing I'm doing over here should take two weeks. How do I do it in two days? That's the real solving of the, the equation there. That's the 80-20 rule. I'm going to figure out how to do what should take two weeks in two days. And then that's the mm -hmm. deadline. That's the only amount of time I'm going to give myself to figure that out. And that will constantly keep you honest towards here's what really matters. This is why like a logo in a member's area, if you're selling products online, that stuff don't matter, dude. It can matter tomorrow. And people are like, I got to get my brand identity solid, Jason. I'm like, let me show you some brands. I pull up the old brands like Starbucks and McDonald's and, and Apple. I'm like, these are what their logos used to look like. And here's what they look like now, right? We can get that mm -hmm. stuff figured out later, but we need to ship, man. We need to put something in front of somebody so they can decide whether they want to buy it or not. I like that. Now, obviously in business, there are different types of businesses, ones that have physical, actual tangible products and ones that have more on the virtual end. But regardless of what type of business they have, right? Any business owner can feel overwhelmed in the process, especially in the beginning. What is a good way for them to actually maneuver through some difficulties of business when they run into a problem or what's a good way for them to solve it without getting stuck? We want to remove the risk as much as we possibly can. The answer is always, how do we move forward on this where the only thing that can happen is something good. Or at least if we move forward on this, nothing bad can happen as a result of trying something out. And oftentimes the risk is non-existent. It's only in the head. Like it doesn't exist. We want to accurately measure risk is the first thing. But I'll give you a great example. With a lot of the new projects and initiatives that we launch, we go out to the audience and say, hey, listen, I don't know if this will work or not. We just flat out mm -hmm. tell them. If it does work the way we think it will, then it's going to be amazing and revolutionary. If it doesn't work, then here's what you're out. You're out this 
this amount of money in this amount of time. Do you want to be a guinea pig on this? Here's what we can guarantee and promise you that we're going to do our best to do X, Y, and Z, one, two, and three. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we're going to figure it out along the way. Do you want to try that out with us? And we love that appeal because it sets the expectations and everybody comes in eyes wide open. And then the result, we can see what happens. If the result is good, fantastic. We got a winner. If the result sucks, fantastic. We saved so much off of our life of struggling to make something work that can't work. If the result mm-hmm. is in between, then we have the ability to go back and iterate and adjust it and try it again. And so everybody can design a low risk experiment where they will only be better as a result because if nothing else, they will gain insight. And even mm-hmm. if you're brand new, the way you sell it is this, hey, I'm fresh and I'm new. I got more to prove. I'm willing to go further, deeper, harder, or I'm more amped up. I got more on the line than the next guy. Mm-hmm. This is why you should consider taking a chance on me. And I'll take all the risks in terms of the risk in the other sense of like, I'll do all the work. And then if it works out, we can we can split the profits or if it works out, we could talk next steps or et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So what explain risk in regards to business? Yeah, good question, right? So here's big risk. What if I create this product and nobody wants to buy it? By the way, most common problem in business is people create a product and then they go looking for a market. Mm-hmm. That's backwards. You should find a problem first and then go seek a solution for that specific problem. That's how you should go about it. But even then, you could create a product that you think solves an existing problem and either the product, nobody actually wants it or they don't want yours. So scariness is I'm going to spend six months, a year, two years, three years, and potentially a whole bunch of money Mm -hmm. only for people to say, I don't want that. And by the way, there's nothing you can do about it. I don't care how good you are. You can't (laughs) sell a Bible to a Muslim. That's not a viable business model, right? And so you got to find out fast if what you have has legs or doesn't have legs. So I'll give you a great example, right? Here's two options. Option one, I have a piece of software I want to develop. I could go hire the team. I could go build the interface. I could go get it designed. And then even if I get the product right, I still got to figure out, can I reach the market and do I know how to communicate to that market and will they buy it, Mm -hmm. right? I could do Mm -hmm. all of that and spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, have a massive overhead, have staff, I'd have designers, I would have developers, programmers, et cetera, et cetera. I'd have managers at that point, God forbid, right? And I'd have to have all this stuff dialed in. Or I could create an example of what the software could look like. It's non-functional, but if I could have one demo video that demonstrates the concept of the software, Mm -hmm. and then I put that together and it's a five-minute demo of something that doesn't actually exist, just what could possibly exist. And then I put that in front of people and say, hey, listen, if I designed and created this, would you commit to buying it or not? Mm -hmm. And you could say to them, hey, listen, if I do go and design this and I do sell this, it will be X. I'm going to give you a special deal as an early mover and as a supporter or whatever you want to call it, right? And then try to take the money because then you'll find out right away if will people pay you for it or not. And I don't care if it's an obscene discount to see if they'll pay you money. And if they do, then you can go out and develop the software. If they don't, then you know you got other problems on hand. And thank God you didn't take on six months to develop the thing and hundreds of thousand dollars of debt before you ran mm-hmm. into the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Time, energy that can't be retrieved back. Yeah. So we got to find out what matters. And by the way, the product is the least important part of a business. I know that that's going to be hard for a lot of people to believe. And there's so many other important parts that are more valuable up front than the product itself is. You got to test, can I reach the audience? If I can reach them, can I reach them in a way that's economically feasible? If I can, do I know what I need to say to that audience in order then to make a decision to spend money with me? So all of those things are pretty much product independent. They're all more about what's surrounding the product, which is the marketing and which is logistics and the operations. See, everybody thinks like, you know, somebody who's a plumber, they think they're in the business of plumbing, right? They have to market. They can't just be good at plumbing. If they're a good plumber, that's not enough. They need to know how to get customers. They need to know how to satisfy customers. They need to know how to do it in a way that's economically feasible. And so any business you're in, you're also in the marketing of that business. And the Mm -hmm. marketing of the business is more important than the business itself. And so we got to find out as fast as possible, can I market this thing? And if I can, that will inform the product that we create. In fact, the best way to create a good product is to start with the marketing of it and then take what you learn from the marketing of that and invest it in the product. 
products. It's easier and it will give you a better result because what I think my customers want, I am almost always wrong. But if I put Mm -hmm. something in their hands so they can play with it and then observe it and make improvements based on those observations, then I'm always right. And observation Mm -hmm. is easier than ingenuity. Apple's a perfect example. Any tech service at this point is a good example because think about it. We always get updates, right? Like they give you the product in hand first. We review it. We tell them what we like, what we don't like, what we want, what we don't want. And then they update it and make tweaks from there. That's right. So yep. that's the iterative process. And Apple started from somewhere, right? A garage. But not, <laughs> exactly. If you haven't, like for the people who are tuning in, if you haven't watched the numerous movies that they have based on Steve Jobs, I feel like that's something good that you should watch. There's one with Ashton Kutcher, which is nice. There's another one with, I can't remember the name of the actor right now, but there's so many mm-hmm. different ones. But you see how even these large companies come from humble beginnings. But a large part of their success, honestly, is having them once they get to obviously that certain point where they have a lot of feedback from customers and consumers and clients, right? It's now the capital to grow. So what would be, especially for college athletes in this NIL spotlight, Mm. right? Because I feel like they have a certain advantage of being able to get more upfront capital than maybe some other business owner might have. So what would be a good way for college athletes now to start using the NIL spotlight to obtain capital to grow and start their business. Yeah, be very careful with it. (laughs) I see people substitute resourcefulness with resources. And if I had to choose between the two, I'd rather be resourceful than have a lot of resources because mm-hmm. resourcefulness will create resources, but it usually doesn't work the other way around. Mm-hmm. So even if you have the money, I would be very cautious to spend any of it other than the least amount of it possible. And I try to spend it after I've proven demand. So to go back to the Apple example, what Jobs did that was really genius is they made a deal. Their first big success was they made a deal with the store and they said, mm-hmm. if we designed X, would you commit to this many orders of it? And after they mm-hmm. got the commitment, of the contract, did they go and design it? And that's where they started. And so get a committed client in hand first that says, I will pay you X number of dollars. And then if you have to take money and invest in it to get the result quicker, sooner, or to get it at all, then that's smart. Then that's how you would use capital in that instance. Mm -hmm. So secure the money first that could come into you. So it's there and then disperse the capital. Other than that, disperse as little of it as possible. In fact, and I'm totally biased here. This is like asking a barber if you need a haircut, right? I think if you spend (laughs) any money, you spend it on education, you buy the books and they can be $10 damn books. And if that's too much, go to the library, right? Spend the money on education and on information that can empower you. And so you can learn more to be resourceful. But a lot of people think if I just spend a lot of money on the solution that gives me an advantage, dude, you're going up against Mm -mm. multi-billion dollar venture capital funds who will fund 10 businesses knowing nine out of 10 of those will fail. And they don't care because the one that hit pays for the other nine. So they're spending billions of dollars on lottery tickets, essentially. You ain't going to beat them from a financial standpoint. So you got to beat them from a strategic standpoint. Exactly. And I like that you said that because 99.999 times out of 100, you're not going to have the most money in that situation, right? And I wanted this kind of ties back earlier what you said as far as marketing, right? Generally, the companies that win in the long run are the companies that invest in the marketing and the visibility of their business. So you have to be able to, at least in the beginning stages, before you get to the stage where you're able to pour money into marketing and obviously the product is good, you need to be able to obviously work on the product itself and being able to make sure that it's a solid product. Like you said, don't shell out a lot of money. Part of making sure that product is good is educating yourself. Your biggest disadvantage is what you don't know. So making sure that you find out what you do know, find out innovative or different ways to improve the product, to grow the product, but to make it a better quality is essentially what's going to help. Like what you said earlier, right? If you know you have a Mona Lisa, it doesn't matter if it's in a paper bag, if it's on the wall in the museum, if it's in somebody's home, or even if it's, you know, in a trash can, it's still the same value, right? All you need to do is make sure you have that value, have that amazing product and put it in the right people's hands. So the world is able to showcase it and see it. I.e. example, you come up with the best metaphors, (laughs) by the way, I said this when we first spoke to pivot a little bit, right? Obviously having knowledge is key, right? But sometimes knowledge doesn't 
doesn't always come from reading about it or studying it yeah. from a book or online. It can come from mentors, right? Oh, yeah. So what would be a good way for somebody or college athlete who maybe they don't know where to find a mentor in their industry, right? What would be a way for them to actually maybe find one or reach out to one in some kind of way? Yeah, you want to look at somebody who has been there and done that, what you're trying to accomplish. And you want to find somebody who doesn't have an agenda, meaning that maybe they're retired, maybe they're just eager to see the next guy get over. Mm -hmm. They're not going to use and exploit you because that happens a lot, unfortunately, right? So you got to be aware of these things. And then you got to earn the right to be mentored by them. So it can't just expect it or be entitled that somebody out there is waiting around to help you out, right? So you mm-hmm. have to earn the right to be somebody that they would bet on to, to put their valuable time into. And so you should look at and consider and have a list of potential people that you would love to have be mentored by. And then you should be relentless in how can I help them or how can I understand them and what they want so then they would be happy to reciprocate because I mentor some guys, right? I love mentoring them but and I mentor them not based on anything that I can get from it or any result. I mentor them because I see opportunity and potential in them that with a little bit of guidance could have a massive amount of impact. And I want to help facilitate that. So you got to find the people in your market that see that. But oftentimes the guys that come to me are guys that have already shown that they've listened to me from my books and my programs. They've implemented it. They've studied the material and they're sincere about truly understanding the nature of the thing, not just trying to use it to get a quick win or a short-term mm-hmm. gain or a transactional type of thing. And then those are the mm-hmm. people that I'm most receptive to being, to mentoring. I like that. And I like when you were saying in finding a mentor, right, they give you guidance because oftentimes it's not always about copying somebody. It's them being able to guide you on a path that they know works. I feel like a lot of people, I feel like honestly, athletes should know this best, but I feel like a lot of them don't consciously realize it. They already have a mentor in their coach, yep. right? They already have a mentor, probably one of the leaders or you know, one of the captains on their team, or maybe they even are a mentor in their own right to their other teammates, right? Yep. So a mentor isn't always about someone who has done what you're already attempting to do. They just are literally showing you the path that you should follow that is the easiest way to get and the quickest way to get to the earth end result. Yeah. The best thing about a mentor in business is to stop you from making a mistake before you make it. (laughs) Got a guy right now, his name's Tez, and I I do some mentoring for him. He's got the grass is always greener syndrome. He's gotten tired of the business that now reliably produces income from him. It's a significant amount of income. You could set your watch to it. He's grown bored with it. And he's only looking at the downside and the limits of the business now. And he wants to start a different business. And he thinks that he can do it the same way he did this business. And it's going to be way harder than he anticipates. So I'm not telling mm-hmm. him not to do it, but I'm preparing him. I'm like, these are the concepts that you might not be considerate of. For example, you got 150 success stories over here from your existing business. You got zero in this new business. Let's not undervalue the fact that you have zero results to prove the concept you have. You're going to have to go get those results. Mm-hmm. How much of that value is in those results? I don't know, but that's a factor. And you bring that up and you, you typically explain to him, hey, listen, there's been many times in my life where I've attempted it. And when I've attempted it, I've failed more than I've succeeded. And if they're looking up to you, they only see your successes. They don't realize all the ways you failed. So they think, oh, I I model him. Anytime I enter a new market, I have no idea if it'll work or not. So again, I'm going to test in ways that are easy to see if it works or if it doesn't work. You're mentoring them based on the dumb mistakes you've made that you're catching early that they're making so you can stop them from making it. And if that's all your mentor does, they're worth their weight in gold. So what are some ways that you have learned from a mentor? that is helpful in your business? Or what are some ways that you have mentored someone that has helped them in their business? Yeah. So my first mentor told me, he goes, it really takes 20 years to be a true master at something. And he says, your goal Mm -hmm. is to figure out how to do it in five. And so that really set me off. That electrified me. I was like, okay, how do I take it? It's a five-year journey now, which is a long journey, but it ain't 20. And how do I get 20 years of experience in five? And that was really powerful for me. And then with one of the clients that I mentor right now, he's a young guy named Kyle. I have to constantly remind him that I don't have all the answers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's reassuring for him because in his mind, he's got to have all the answers. And he looks to me because he thinks I have all the answers. So the best thing I can do for Kyle is show him how messed up my life is in how many ways. And that just because Mm -hmm. I'm really good at this one thing doesn't mean that I don't struggle and have all sorts of challenges and have issues myself with confidence and second guessing. And I have the same problems he does. Mm -hmm. I just manage him a little bit differently. 
And so that's the best lesson that I could give him. And it's been really useful for him because he puts me on a pedestal. And then as a result of that, he has an impossible standard that he can't meet. That's powerful. I want to kind of circle back to what you said earlier, as far as the, it takes 20 years to master something, but you want to learn how to do it in five. What are some of the ways that you have learned to master something basically in that time frame? Yeah, and that's where it set me off on that 80-20 rule because it's like I just got to find the few key things. And if I'm just good at these things, then it makes up for all these other things. They're oftentimes not harder to learn. You just got to be more intelligent about what's important to learn. And it's obvious if you reflect on it for any period of time, you figure out what makes a difference in any market. What did people do right versus what they didn't do right? And then you strip off all the unnecessary necessary things and get it down to its few core elements, then it becomes very obvious. Most businesses, they started with one small, tiny little area that they were successful in, and then they blew it up from there and they leveraged that. You can just Mm -hmm. see it repeated over and over and over again. Amazon wasn't the everything store when they first started. They sold books. Remember that little bookstore called Amazon, right? It's now the biggest store (laughs) on the internet. So they found a way in which they could compete and be innovative, and then they used the micro to prove the max. And that my mm-hmm. thing is the same thing. I sold a $4 ebook when I was starting so I could just get it out there. So that's how I learned it because you learn through experience more than you learn through any other form of education. Here's how you really mm-hmm. learn. You attempt, you observe, and you adjust. So the most valuable skill set we, we use in our business is what's called a postmortem. We do something and then we say, what went right about that? What could be improved? And what do we learn? And then we invest mm-hmm. that into the next activity. And so constantly reflecting on what you did and finding the adjustments is key. It's like watching game film, man. I mean, people mm-hmm. watch game field all the time in sports and nobody's running the tape back in business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I remember last time we spoke that we were talking about how sports being able to be an athlete right on any level, but especially on a college level, because it's obviously a bit more organized in some of the lower levels. But being able to be in sports, it's very synonymous and you learn a lot of the same things in sports that apply to business. What are some of those key things that these athletes essentially already know, they may not think is important, but is when it comes to business. Discipline and consistency. You show up every day and that's the consistency portion. In business, 80% of winning is showing up. You win more through attrition than you do through excellence, meaning everybody else quits Mm -hmm. and you're the only one left, right? That's Mm -hmm. how most businesses won, just being the last person to quit. So you have the consistency already in you and then you have the dedication, the discipline. You've learned skills such as goal setting. You've learned the importance importance, uh, fundamentals, for example, you've had coaches, most of them probably weren't that great, but a few of them you probably remember and say, oh my God, they changed my life, right? The big Mm -hmm. gap that you have to bridge is business is a mental sport. So there's a lot of differences than you do in a physical sport, but you can still invest the same mental attitudes that made you successful in Mm -hmm. sports. Because even in sports, it's mostly a mental game at the end of the day, right? What Mm -hmm. do we learn mentally that allowed us to perform in sports and show up? And how can we invest that same mental attitude in our business? The only difference there, and this is the hard one, this is the hardest one of all, is everything in sports can be very easily measured and often is measured, like shots taken, attempts made, percentages, Mm -hmm. you know, in baseball, it gets insane, right? You have all these metrics. And then in business, like when you're starting, you have zero metrics. You have nothing. So Mm -hmm. you have to make metrics. Sports, by the way, you're generally playing team sports. I was a wrestler. So even a wrestling team, we did have a team, but at at the end of the day, it was you and another person and a referee on the mat, right? But generally you have the support system when you're playing sports. You do not have that in business when you're starting out. Not really. So you either got to find a way to get one, which is hard to do, or you got to learn how to rely on yourself and not have a whole team and a whole set of coaches and an athletic trainer, right? And a nutritionist or any of these other assets and resources you have given to you right now. So those are important, Mm -hmm. but you have to go out there and hunt for them. You have to learn self-reliance in a unique way that especially for team sports, you didn't have. Now you can build the team later and you can bring in the coaches later, right? You just got to figure out how to take the disciplines that you're already good at over here and slightly adjust them so you can be good at them over there. Explain how my mindset also plays a matter into that, right? Because you can't be consistent without having the right mindset to know that no matter what happens, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do this. No matter what the outcome might be that day, I know that what I'm working towards is essentially greater, right? And I actually have this written on my mirror, right? As affirmations, I have these four things, focus, consistency, discipline, and execution, right? But I feel like all four of those still are under the umbrella of mindset. So can you just kind of explain mindset a bit and how a lot 
lot of these same attributes that we were just speaking about in sports still apply to business and how essentially they can amplify those when it comes to their business. They apply 100%. The big difference here is it's easier to take it personal in business because you're putting your soul out there, your full soul. So if people reject your product, they reject you. And that's the challenge that people have trouble getting over. And so the mindset is to learn how you are indestructible, regardless of whether you're accepted or not in the marketplace as of now, and not making your decisions based upon those external factors, but having an internal system that is so strong and confident that you're willing to risk failing and rejection in order to get to the point you need to be at. So that's that all takes mindset. And so the mindset to that is really, it starts with acceptance, accepting who you are today, and that no matter what, you can become better tomorrow, and that these are learning experiences. These are not judgments against your character. And that's hard to do in practice. It's easy in theory, but once you understand the theory of it, you've got to find a way for it to show up in practice. And I've always Mm -hmm. made it work well because I've shifted the focus from me to my audience. Instead of saying, what will happen if I try this? I say, who isn't being served today? And if they continue Mm -hmm. to not be served, they will continue to be in pain. Whose pain can I relieve today? As opposed to focusing on me and my own inefficiencies and my own inadequacies. And so I can make the focus on the audience and then my problems feel insignificant. And then I go out there and serve them and then confidence comes as a byproduct of that. So now I start to Mm -hmm. feel capable as a result, but I don't have to pump myself up necessarily first and do all sorts of rituals and routines in order to get there. I just put the focus on the third party, not on the first party. Mm -hmm. And then I try to take that attitude into battle of business. I'm glad you touched on the, the pain aspect, right? Because we talked about it at the beginning but we didn't use the exact word pain, right? It, we talked about, you know, basically find out what they're missing or what they're lacking or, you know, what they're complaining about essentially. But a large part in business is focusing on someone's pain points. Yep. And I've learned that people run from pain quicker than they run to pleasure. Mm-hmm. So when understanding someone's pain points, right, how are you able to market to your audience, your audience's pain points? Like, how are you able to craft the proper messaging, right? Because it's one thing to know your audience's pain points pain points is one thing to know how to solve it and market it that way if that makes sense totally right so so how do you do that yeah and we always want to alleviate pain you know pleasure is optional pain is mandatory (laughs) let's remove pain first before we talk i always call it let's get you out of hell before we sell you the plan to heaven (laughs) (laughs) i like that's a good one so you can do it in a variety of ways. Apple solves a pain more than they give a pleasure. The pain is, you know, especially the first iPhone, all these other dumb phones suck. They're dorky looking. They ain't going to get you laid on a Friday night, right? And they're frustrating to deal with. And now we got this sleek mm-hmm. new piece of designer wear that masquerades as a phone. It solves your problems of A, looking like a dork in public, and B, it solves your problems of having something that you actually genuinely look forward to using instead of merely tolerate its limitations. Mm-hmm. Up. Every brand does this. Every successful brand, they solve a major problem. By the way, not necessarily even major. You can solve extremely minor problems that are just nuances. And if the economics work, then they work, right? So there's this guy in my neighborhood who drives a, a truck that says, like, we pick up dog poop. <laughs> and to really rich people who don't want to pick up their own dog poop, he solves a problem for them. And they pay that, for that. The way I look at it, it's like wow. this. is like, if I had to sell you on a whiter, brighter smile, or I had to sell you relief from a cavity where you have a crippling toothache that keeps you up all night. I'm going to sell you the mm-hmm. relief from the crippling toothache because that's required. Exactly. you got to fix that. Every second you don't fix that, you continue yeah. to be in agony versus a potential gain. That's so much harder to sell. And so we're listening to where the people are struggling and then we're finding very unique or easy ways to alleviate the struggling that everybody else is overlooking. Often the problems that we solved, if traditional methods solved them, they wouldn't need us. So we look for the people mm-hmm. who've been ran through this system and haven't found adequate results because the system wasn't designed for them specifically. And then we design a specific solution for them. And then that's kind of how we create the products. So we always start with the pain point. You know, when we help Mm -hmm. businesses, we really help businesses with not to make money, but not to be broke. That's what we really help businesses with to escape the prison of impoverty, right? Being broken and not capable of paying for yourself or living the life you want. So it's not, let me, I mean, we talk about it, but ultimately at the end of the day, What really motivates something is I want to run away from being broke, not I want to run towards being rich. 
So we help them get unbroke <laughs> more than anything. I, I like how you say that. And then I got a wrap here. I got so in closing, what are some key tips that you haven't already spoken about that you could probably give to an athlete just to make sure that their chances of success are higher? Yeah, you got to look at immediately what are the leverage points that already exist, net new ones that I mm-hmm. have to create. So do you have affinity towards a market already as opposed to creating affinity? Do you have resources mm-hmm. that other people in your competitive environment might not have access to? Do you have relationships which you could leverage in an ethical way in order to open doors that otherwise would be closed? So before you create mm-hmm. anything new, look at what you already have and see if you can strategically get more out of it than you're getting right now, especially if you can do it strategically in a way where everybody benefits as a result. And I think college athletes, they have a lot more resources available to them than most of the entrepreneurs that come to me who are starting out and trying to build a business. Now, maybe you have Mm -hmm. less time than those entrepreneurs. So I totally get that. But I believe you probably, it might be hard for you to believe right now, but I bet you have more resources already available to you than most people do. It's just that I guarantee you most athletes are not using those resources. Exactly. And that could be the coaches, mentors you have, people on your team, the departments and and things that they have within your school, right? Like I hear all the time that they're, you know, think about like this, a perfect way to show and prove that college athletes don't utilize all the tools available to them. How many of you all go to your office hours for your professor, especially in the class that you're, whether you're doing good in the class or not good in the class, right? That's a perfect example. And obviously might be some that say I go all the time, but let's be real. Most people don't. So that's just an example of there are resources, tools, and opportunities that are available to you that you might not know about or that you simply don't take advantage of. And that just kind of ties back into your biggest disadvantage is what you don't know and what you don't utilize. I mean, just think alumni, right? So say you want to start a business and you want to pick the brains of somebody who's been successful. Find the people that went to the university that you're at that are very, very much into the sport you play and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I'm thinking of starting a business kind of like the one you started. If I Mm -hmm. sit down with you for an hour or two, would you help me out? They'll just say yes automatically because the affinity is already there, right? Like that's huge. Mm -hmm. Those are doors that are easy to open with lessons that are unavailable and not freely given to most people that you have within your limits to tap into just like that. Exactly. Look, I appreciate you coming on today. I know that I could continue to pick your brain and you can continue to provide value. I just want to open the floor. Is there any, you know, last ideas, thoughts, gems that you might be able to share with the audience? Yeah, I have this thing called study to action ratio and I never wanted to exceed one to one. So for every hour Mm -hmm. you study about business, you should follow up with an hour of action. Ideally, you should be taking more action than you study. I like a one to 16 ratio. For every hour I study, I implement for 16 hours. So we want to get it to that point, right? But it's easy Mm -hmm. to listen to podcasts like these and thinking you're doing something. You're starting to be in a position to do something. So the podcasts have their value. Don't get me wrong. But if you've listened to me for an hour, now it's time for you to go out and put it to work for an hour. I like that. 80 to 20, one to one. You said study Study to action action ratio. ratio. Yeah. I already know that I'm about to rewatch this video, take some notes of my own and literally start implementing a lot of these things. So Jason, I appreciate you so, so much for being able to be here today. Can you go ahead and let the audience know where they can find you if they want to, you know, ask any questions. Maybe if I know that webinars aren't usually for college athletes, but maybe one of them has a business out there, they might be able to utilize some of your services on. So can you just kind of give them, you know, a gist of where they can find you? Yeah, best place is YouTube. So I did all this stuff, sold hundreds of millions without any social media. And I figured out one day I better get on that stuff. So Mm -hmm. go to my YouTube. I have videos there. I'm not selling anything there. I'm just giving away knowledge. A lot of this is strategic thinking. So check me out on YouTube. I'll give you more insights there. All righty. Thank you so much, Jason. And I do hope to have you on uh, on another episode. Yeah, I'd love to. All righty. Hey, and thank you listeners and viewers for tuning in today. Look, if you haven't already, go ahead and like, comment. If you have any questions, drop them down below and subscribe and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. <music>